Hello and welcome to Show and Tell, the podcast series from the RPG Academy, where we bring on a guest and we talk about something cool. Today's guest is Chris Rollins. Uh, you may know him as NPC Chris from the NPC Cast podcast. Uh, he's also the co-founder of 1000 XP, a game development publishing company, I guess, uh, that has their first game, or is this second, was, was Under My Bed your actual first game? So technically, this is our first major game. Under My Bed was a, a solo release, uh, but we put it under under the uh, the fold. So Matt gets credit for that, uh, but this is our first like big game, so we're super excited. Fantastic. And we have Chris on today to talk about their currently kickstarting game, The Last Garden. So Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for getting me up at like 7 in the morning. <laughs> technically 6.30 is what I had to set my alarm for on a Sunday morning. So Yeah, I'm so sorry. So sorry. It's but, not you like know, we're in the middle of con season or, or anything like that. So we, we suffer for our art, my friend. We do. It's fun to talk to you, so I'm glad we could find time to do it. Awesome. Yeah, and anyone who listens to our show regularly knows that I am a fan of your show. Um, I, I recommend it often. And uh, we've, we've discussed before that I always feel like there's this kind of weird connection because our show started almost exactly the same time. Yeah. And we've crossed over on each other's shows a little bit. And, you know, I, I kind of track myself compared to you guys. And I just I, I really am a fan of what you guys do. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on the program for anything. And in particular, this, I think, is an awesome project. Um, myself, I have a few ideas kicking around my head like most GMs do. They have game ideas they want to get to. And mm-hmm. you guys have done it. I mean, you, you've already funded. We'll, we'll jump to the yeah. end here. You funded your, your last Garden Kickstarter. You're well on your way through, your I think, to your fourth stretch goal. Yeah, I think we're – I think we might have had five stretch goals now. Yeah, we, we funded it in like a little under 36 hours. So – uh, it was super uh, overwhelming and kind of it, it took us back a little bit because we knew that we were going to we, we really felt confident that we were going to fund. We think the game is really good and, you know, we've been making content for a long time. And so we knew we had a, a nice support structure there. Uh, but f- to fund in under two days was so amazing. And it was really a, a big sigh of relief because I was like, oh, man, I just hope I don't have to stress for like 35 days, like, you know, biting my nails. So it's going really well. We're really happy with it. And uh, people seem to enjoy what we're making and uh yeah it's, it's going great awesome and, and we're going to get into a lot of details about the game and where it came from and how it plays and then i want to get into some of the kickstarter specific stuff because i personally have an interest in that yeah but i wanted to mention that i, I with the podcast i have become i don't say familiar but i track a lot of kickstarters because i mm-hmm. have friends that are kickstarting stuff i have other companies that i i like and you know again i've i've ran a couple for our catacon and when I see somebody talk about, you know, I think the worst thing is when you fund late because there, because you have 30 days roughly of stress. Mm-hmm. You're just dying the whole time. Are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? Are we going to get there? And then a lot of Kickstarters, you know, have a burst the last couple of days and they fund. Is there a stress to funding early? And now you're like, wait, what do we do? Like we've already funded. We've only, we still got 29 days left. Now what? So uh, it it's it's very much like a first world problem. So I don't want to I don't want to call it I don't want to call it stress. I, sure. I have a lot of friends who lit- have active Kickstarters right now that they're you know that they're hoping that they're able to reach their goal by the end. Uh, and so I talk to them all the time, and like you know we we all support one another in trying to get their uh, their projects funded as well. Um, but we do have a, a slight like kind of logistical issue in that uh, we only really planned on doing like five stretch goals or so. And now we've kind of blown through those with like three weeks left. And so it's a lot of like work in going back to our manufacturer and getting quotes on like new stuff and and making that all sort of work out. And we have to be very careful because, you know, it's – 
it's kind of like the impression that people get is that, oh, the worst case scenario is, you know, you, you're stressed out the whole time and you don't fund, right? But really the worst case scenario with Kickstarter is you fund, but then you've overpromised and you can't deliver the product that you say you're going to deliver or you've, you know, done your spreadsheet wrong and all of a sudden you're losing, you know, five bucks a copy. And yep. if you're losing five bucks a copy and you've only sold, you know, 200 copies, that's not as bad. But if you're losing five bucks a copy and you sold a thousand copies, then it gets pretty bad, you know? Yep. So that's really the biggest fear. And we're trying to find that balance. Like when we started the campaign, I, I was very comfortable with saying, you know, five stress goals. I think that's, we have the game we want to make. But when you're in the Kickstarter campaign and it's actually live, there is this tendency to want to give the people who are backing you and supporting you what they want. And I think that, you know, as a content creator, you you know how that is. You know, you want to give the audience what, what they want. And so you're trying to find that balance of, okay, how can I give uh, people what they want? And in some cases, you know, they come up with some tremendous ideas. For example, we uh, put a stretch goal into the game where we actually are changing the, the dice from these like plain white dice to metallic colored dice. And that was a, one of the comments in our the Kickstarter page mentioned that and we're like oh that's a great idea so we got it quoted and we made it happen um so you want to give people what they want but you also want to make sure that you're not crippling yourself and that you're not sacrificing you know your vision for the product uh one of the big things that people are asking for right now with the last garden which is a board game for two to four players is people want us to either go to five players or to a solo mode uh and the solo mode i think is something that i tried to do and and wasn't able to sort of get it to mesh well in time for the campaign, but it's something that I still hope to possibly implement. Uh, and the five players is kind of the same way, but with the five player game um, of our game, which we did test, uh, they tend to be a little bit chaotic and we were really not very happy with uh, the way that it worked. And I mean, mechanically, the game can support five players. But we just felt the experience wasn't where we wanted it to be at five players. And so we this is our like our first big project, right? So we don't want to be that company that puts two to five in the box, but five players sucks. So right. you know, so we're really passionate about saying like no, two to four is like where the, the core experience is at. And we know that we can probably get a few, you know, a few more backers if we go to five players, but it's just it's probably not gonna happen in this campaign. However, there are some stretch goals that uh we have unlocked which might make that more possible, but we can talk about that later when we talk about the structure of the campaign and stuff. Yeah, that's one of the things I was, you know, again, I've been keeping up with the campaign and I, I've been seeing the, the comments and, uh, you know, and you basically re-quoted what you said in the comment section is that, you know, you looked at five players and it just didn't feel right. right. And I I appreciate the hell out of that attitude. And, and you know, again, just to bring it back to me for a second, because it's all about me, is, uh, you know, I, I went to a convention yesterday and one of my pet peeves is when you go to a gaming convention, like an RPG convention, and all the RPGs are for like six or eight players. Yeah. Because the GMs get credit for man hours basically when they run games. So they, it's easier for them to run two games with eight players than it is to run four games with four players. And I don't like playing RPGs with eight players because I don't think it's as much fun. Yeah. So like, it, you know, Catacon specifically, we try to limit, unless there's a specific reason for a lot of players, we say four or five is the max. And I just, I really appreciate the fact that you guys are like, no, this, this is a two to four game. Because that's where it's the best for the game. And, you know, maybe your next project might be a five to eight player game. But this project is a two to four. And I I just I'm so happy to see you as a creator say this is the best experience. This is what we want to put out. I just think it's it's um, admirable that you would do that. Because like you said, you probably could get some extra backers Mm -hmm. if you went to five. But is it worth it? And you think no. And I again, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I mean, even before that came up, uh, I got a a message from a backer, and they they backed. They just gave us five bucks, and it was a a fellow uh, game designer, and uh, he was like, "Hey, you know, I want to support your project, so I'm I'm gonna you know give you five bucks." He's like, "But I just made it a rule, you know, I have so many unplayed games that I no longer will back games un- unless they have a five player mode because that that's just what." I need in my collection right now. Sure. And I was, I was like, yeah, you know, well, that's, I totally respect that. Like, here's the reasons for not, for not doing it. I'm not trying, like, if you have, you know, five players, if you always have a five player group, like, I'm not trying to sell you our game and saying, Hey, well, like maybe you should buy our game and then Sally doesn't get to play. Like, I'm not <laughs> like, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that like for our particular game, uh, it doesn't really mesh well at five. So, you know, people, uh, it's not like, None of these these suggestions that people are giving are are you know selfish. It's it's all people that want to help the campaign and, and they want to see it it get better. Uh, and so you know I really thank everyone that's in the comment section, kind of pushing us and trying to poking at us and giving us ideas and trying to say, hey, well, have you thought thought about this or that? You know, and in some cases it's like, no, we haven't thought about that. Let's do that. And then the other cases it's like, yeah, we thought about that, and here's our reasons why we didn't do it that way. Um, but but for us, it's like part of the whole journey for this for this game is we are on kickstarter with this game because we're trying to make the game that we wanted to make uh this game actually had another publisher that was interested in in publishing the game and uh we eventually said you know it's been awesome working with you but we want to go in a different direction because they wanted to change the the theme of the game which is kind of weird and they wanted to change the theme to something a little bit more mainstream because you know it's they're a publisher and they have a, their brand and, you know, they're trying to, uh, you know, pay their bills, you know, so, sure, of course. so so we don't fault them for that. But it's like, hey, we have an opportunity to make the exact game that we want, the exact way that we want to make it. And, you know, let's try it. And so let's see what happens. And so that's how The Last Garden came to pass. But, you know, th- to give people an idea of, of what the game is about, you know, The Last Garden is the story of the last person on Earth. Um, she's the queen of earth and she's found all these robots and she's reprogrammed them into robotanists and she's using these robotanists to help her build an artificial garden in the wastelands of the post-apocalypse. So players take on the role of these robotanists trying to compete to become the queen's favorite group. Uh, so you're going to be basically manipulating this uh, board where there's all these kind of sectors of the garden and there's these uh, gems that you put onto the board and you move them around, you add gems to it, and then you kind of change the structure of the sectors. Uh, and then your robotness meeples are basically like little bets that you place. So you can think of it like craps or roulette or games like camel up where you're placing bets on multiple ways to score. Uh, and so it's a worker placement game because you're claiming spots where you can place your workers, but it also has direct interaction because Michael, if you go onto a sector and it has, you know, five gems, on it, I can actually try to put more gems onto that sector to overload it and make you lose a bunch of points. So there's some direct interaction as well. And it's this kind of weird combination of mechanisms with a really kind of kooky theme that came from a dream that Matt had. So is that where the the four to five player kind of chaos comes from? Is the fact that you do interact directly with five players, it just gets a little messy? Yep, absolutely. So, uh, you, you know, the game, like, we put on the, on the, the campaign page, we, we called it, uh, a take that game. We have that as one of, the, one of the mechanics. And we've actually gotten some pushback on people who have played it. They're like, we don't feel like it's a take that game. It's like an area control game. Uh, but we want to be very, very open with people that, like, this is a game where you're going to be sometimes going after one another pretty directly. And at five players, because, 
you know, you're betting on something that everyone is is has a control over. By the time you bet on something on your turn, and it's four other players have like played their cards and manipulated something, the board is totally different, and you have no idea, you know, what what it's going to end up as. So it's really hard to predict how things are going to go at five players, and it was just too chaotic, right? And it's it's kind of like a betting game, so you know, like at that point, it's basically like, well, why don't you just put your workers out and then roll some dice and see who has the most points? You know, like that's kind of how it ends up being with five players. Um, but it's almost even worse, right? Because if you go first and you're like in the lead, then everyone, all four players are going to have an opportunity to try to, try to, you know, mess you up. And because there's four of them, they're going to have, you know, that much more chance to do that. So it's, it's just very much like a, a, um, a balance of trying to give players enough agency but also have enough unpredictability there that people feel like they're not quite sure. Like everything is, you have to kind of choose your, your risks uh, wisely. Okay. And then to kind of circle back around to, as you were saying that, you know, someone, a publisher was interested in taking your game, right. but you wanted to do your way. Uh, it's, it's working. You guys are, you know, you're probably what about 180% funded at this point. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I have to look at the, I'm not very good at math, yeah, it, but it's uh, not quite double. I know that, no. uh, but it's close to double. So I was just rough housing about 180%, but you're yeah, doing yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. We're at, we're a little over 16,000 and we asked for 9,800. So yeah, it's going, it's going really well. And like I said, we're, uh, we're, you know, hammering down stretch goals and kind of, uh, kind of doing it. So we'll see how, right. we'll see how it ends up. And again, I, and I do want to move into some of the actual just, you know, blue collar. How do you make a Kickstarter work? How do you yeah. get through all that? Uh, but I want to make sure that we give, you know, enough time to the actual game itself so that people want to go check it out. Sure. So, uh, so how else, um, so again, so we got the theme, Queen, Last Person on Earth, Robotness, which again yep. is always fun to say. Uh, it's kind of an area control with some gambling mechanics as well. A little bit of, uh, take that. Yep. Um, so is there anything like, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this question. So as someone who plays a lot of games, as someone mm-hmm. who has designed games now, what what is your favorite part of this game as a player? Like where do you get your where do you derive your sense of enjoyment when you're playing this game? So uh the, the, for me there's a couple areas that I really like about this game. So for first of all, I mean, we unabashedly made a game that we like to play. So, um, so I'm going to tell you, I'm a little bit biased for multiple reasons. <laughs> One, because I designed the game. Two, because I designed the game that I wanted to play. Uh, so my favorite parts are the fact that it's a worker placement game. So you have that worker placement style of decision making where it's like, okay, I can take this spot now or I cannot go there go to this spot instead, hoping that the spot that I really want to go to will be open by the time it gets back around to me. And you have to kind of think of that through, but it also has the direct interaction of games that are a little bit more cutthroat. So I like that element of it. I also like the fact that on each round, you are dealt a hand of five cards uh, and you only are going to play four of them, but that's your entire hand for the entire round. So when you look at your hand at the beginning of the round, that will alter the way that you're going to play that round. For example, if you have a lot of uh, cards that place gems onto the garden, you might want to bet strongly onto the uh, mine area of, of the board, which is trying to get the majority of colors. So it's like, okay, I have four cards that can add gems to the board. That means I can add four blue gems. That means if I bet on blue, I have a good shot at you know winning that section of the board. Uh, and so you have to kind of adjust your strategy on the fly. And it's a very, very tactical game. I mean, obviously the way I've described it, you know, things are constantly shifting, constantly changing. I love the fact that each game is going to be very different than the last game. Uh, we have a mechanic in the game where 
in between rounds, after you sort of score all your workers and you bring them back, the garden doesn't reset. So all the gems that have been placed, all the carnage that has been wrought onto the on the <laughs> garden, uh, that affects persists from round to round. So every single game will be different than the last game you played. In fact, we're, we're playing at a convention this uh, this weekend at Emerald City Comic Con. We've been playing a bunch of games. And yesterday, Matt texted me a picture, and he's like, this is the board after the end of the first round. And there was one gem on the board. So that means that people all basically put all the rest of the gems onto an area that overflowed, and they all got removed. And I'd never seen that happen before. And, you know, we've been playing this game for two years now. We've been It's been in development for a long time. And so the fact that there's still, you know, instances that crop up that are like, wow, like, how would I play in on a board with only one gem? Like, oh, man, that's going to be really tight. The scoring is going to be really, really small. And then in the other, uh, you know, end of the spectrum is the other night I played in a game that had uh, no gems removed from the board. So at the end, you had like 30 gems on the board, you know, and you're getting a ton of points. So the game is constantly shifting. And I really like the fact that it does that. And it actually makes my sanity a lot better because I have to play the game a lot. So I've always seen something new, which is really nice. So let's talk a little bit more about the the Kickstarter. It's yes. it's a very clean Kickstarter. You basically have two things you can pledge. You can pledge yep. a hey, here's some money because I want to support you, and there's a I want a copy of the game. It's basically it's basically one thing you can pledge. It's basically the uh, the copy of the game is is. 35 bucks. Uh, we did the $1 level. And the only reason I did that is because I have uh, friends and family who have never used Kickstarter before. So it's a, when you, any campaign you go to, you can donate like two bucks, but it's a little bit harder. It's not really surfaced. So I wanted to make sure that like, you know, when my aunt goes to the page, she knows that she can click on a button to give me $10, you know? So, yes. so that basically it's two goals, but re, or two rewards, but basically it's one reward. Right. One is to get the game, uh, you know, in, in with shipping. And then the other is just, I want to help you out. And actually, yep. I mean, just as someone who checks out a lot of Kickstarters, you're going to have people that want to just give you money yep. and not even necessarily just friends and family. Like you said, it's like a random Game designers like, hey, I want to support you. Here's a way to do it. So anyone in, out there who's thinking about doing a Kickstarter, you you should have a level for just uh, donations. You know, because yeah. you're because you will get donations. Yeah, and so, like I said, so so really quick though, like I said, so Kickstarter did change their 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 structure. So uh, any campaign can um, take you know, pledges at any level. Like you don't, like, even if you don't set a $1 level, someone can still pledge a dollar to your campaign. But I think surfacing that, especially if it's like your first campaign and you're going to be hitting up all your family and friends who maybe don't use the platform. If you just make a, make a $1 level, it's going to really help, uh, you know, get a few extra people and people like to see that. And then we put a little thing on ours where it's like, Hey, if you pledge a dollar, we'll name a flower after you. So, uh, we're going to figure out how to do that. And then, (laughs) but you know, so it's, it's just there on the forefront to get people hooked. So what was the thought process behind having this level of Kickstarter versus, you know, first 30 people, they get a deluxe version of the game or, you know, again, any number of other very successful Kickstarters that have so many different levels? Like, what was your thought process in doing it this way? So our our big thing is, uh, for us, this is kind of a throwback campaign. Our entire, like, marketing, you know, pitch for this campaign is like, hey, this is a game that's weird. That couldn't be made without Kickstarter. We want to go back to the roots of Kickstarter, and, and we wanted to do a very simple way of doing that. Uh, part of that is that this is our first major project. Like I, we mentioned at the top of the show, like I did Under My Bed, but that's a micro game. It was like 18 cards. And so we had a lot of backers, but the manufacturing and the logistics were very, very simple. This game has a lot more moving components, a lot more stuff going on. And so we wanted to keep it as simple as possible so that we could look at our spreadsheet and be like, okay... We think here's what we need. Uh, here's what you know we think we can get, so on and so forth. So we wanted to keep it very, very simple. Um, there are people who have asked us that, like, oh, hey, you know, you should do uh, a, a 
reward tier that gives you multiple, you know, pledges or multiple games, uh, or you should do a reward tier. Like someone said that you should do a reward tier that's like, you know, a thousand bucks, and you'll just make them a custom like box or whatever. It's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Like it's, <laughs> it's just, it's just something that it sets us up for letting people down, you know, and we wanted to make sure it was very clean. We, like, we want you to deliver, we want to be able to deliver the project that we're promising. When it comes to the early bird stuff, like there are campaigns that do it and some of them are, you know, successful, but I honestly think they're successful in spite of that. There's been a lot of research that's been going around, a lot of, uh, you know, polls and data that's been collected that say actually like having early bird tiers to your campaign actually hurts you more often than they help you. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, even if you have like your, hey, the first 30 people get X, right? Well, the first 30 people for this campaign were like friends that I personally messaged and said, hey, hey support please, yeah. me. <laughs> and they were going to be there on day one no matter what, right? right. So like, A, you're only going to be hitting the people that are most passionate about what you're making anyway, and they're going to be in a little bonus. Cool. That's good for them. But then now everyone that comes to your campaign sees, oh, well, they got it for $30, why am I like the the rube that has to pay forty for it? You know, and it mm-hmm. is it is it is it makes people feel awkward. So more and more often, people are not really doing the the early bird uh, sort of tiers or specials. Um, there are some that you know, if if your campaign's large enough, it makes sense to say, hey, like we're going to do it in phases. Like I know, uh, I don't think Bones has done a Kickstarter in a long time, but you know, they did it. Okay, we have phase one. So if you back in this phase, the first hundred people, we're going to ship theirs out first, and then the next hundred people. And right. so the later you back the later you are in the in the sort of delivery queue and that makes sense to me um but in general it's just kind of it's it's now frowned upon to have those kind of early bird tiers uh and it adds some complexity to the campaign and for us like our whole thing was like keep it simple kiss keep it simple stupid like just do uh, a game 35 bucks there you go and we did do some things like for example we have on our page uh you can spend if you you know want an extra copy you can throw in an extra add a 35 dollars to your pledge level and then we'll give you an extra copy you know so there are ways to get multiple copies and we've asked retailers uh who are interested in the game to email us directly and we'll work them with, with them off kickstarter um to get them copies because you know we don't have a retailer specific tier um now when we do first future campaigns, if we if we do future campaigns, I, I am open to the possibility of doing that. But just for our first campaign, I was like, oh, it's kind of cool. Like you said, everyone has all these like tons of reward tiers. Well, what if we're the ones that do one reward tier? And, you know, that's kind of like our thing where it's like, hey, we're doing a really clean campaign. And so that's kind of what we went with. And I again, it, obviously it's working. I think it's a great decision. And, you know, you don't get me wrong. I have no ill will towards anybody who uses Kickstarter as a pre-sale method uh, or as an actual, like, we won't make this game unless we get funded because mm-hmm. it's there and people are, you know, it's, it's supply and demand. Yep. If they put up a Kickstarter and people give them money, then they would be stupid not to do it. So I don't fault them for it. Yep. But I think for the first major release, I think your campaign looks great. I think the way you've done Kickstarter is very, very smart. And yeah, you, you know, you might have missed out on a thousand dollar pledge. But it would have been a lot of extra work to try to complete that when you've got other things to work on. And like I said, more than likely, it would have either taken longer than you thought or it would have been a disappointment to the person who gave you that money, which then turns that into a negative. So, I, again, I'm by no means an expert. I think it's smart and I think you did a great job with it. Thank you. Yeah, it's it, the whole sort of campaign is built around this this idea where it's like, you know, Matt and I aren't really 
we're not being we're not greedy like we're not we're not trying to like min max this thing to death uh we just want the game to be out there and we want the people that are into it to have a chance to to get it uh and so we're it's we're not like out there trying to like squeeze every last dollar i mean if if we were we'd make a five player variant right like so it's not about that project to us but this is our first real release as 1000 xp and this is sort of solidifying our brand and what we stand for and, you know, there's a reason why when we made the 1000 XP website so that people can go to and check out like, you know, our games or our content that we're making, uh, we put our faces on the front of that website. And it, it was, I looked around and I was like, you know, there's all these publishing companies, but like, like, I don't know who these people are, you know? And so we, we wanted to be personal and we wanted to be at the forefront and say, Hey, like you are helping us make these cool things. And that's why we did the Kickstarter video the way we did is like, you know, it opens up the Kickstarter video opens up with like a little... Uh, a little story of the the queen and we have some narration and some a little bit of like very light animation for the to kind of set up the game and then it's right to me and Matt making our our pitch to people about like hey like here's where we want your support and the reason we did that is cuz you know I looked around and there's so many board game kickstarters that are coming out now where the the uh, the Kickstarter campaign video is basically like a commercial for the game and you never see the creators, you never hear their story or any of that stuff. And it's like, we wanted to, like I said, be a throwback to these sort of more personal campaigns. It's like, we are two guys who are really excited about inspiring people and encouraging creativity. And we uh, need your support in making this happen. And so that's kind of what we did, you know, and, and it, it fits into our our entire ethos and our entire brand. Like you know, 1000 XP. We we do games, but we also do content. As you know, uh, we do a show called Board Game Design Time, where we try to you know encourage people to design games and 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 get creative. And um, you know, we kind of are really focused on that. Our you know our mission statement is clear: it's inspire imagination, encourage creativity. And so, like for example, one one of the things we did with our stretch goals is we did something called hack packs. And uh, the hack packs are basically extra components that people who back the Kickstarter will get that will allow them to make expansions, uh, design their own expansions. So we're going to give you extra components for our game and you're going to be able to come up with your own custom expansions. And that's kind of like where we landed with the five player and the one player variant is we actually had someone who played a play test. We told him about the hack packs and he's like, oh, I want to design a one player variant using those pieces. And we're like, yeah, do it, you know? And he actually just recently backed he actually made a comment uh in on our page and we're already starting to see people like on our uh, board game geek page who are designing their own expansions and kind of getting the the creative juices flowing and that's really cool to us so that's kind of like our whole ethos and we're happy that the, the kickstarter can be a reflection of that and you know this is basically just like us putting our money where our mouth is and saying you know we are two creators who want to create create things and we need your support to do that and um so far it's been going it's been going really well like we're so excited with the, the way the campaign's going and uh it's it's been really fun yeah, I wanted to, I was going to circle back around to that, that because you have such a clean Kickstarter that there's basically one level that you can pledge for, mm-hmm. then all the stretch goals are for everyone. Like, so everyone, anytime yep. you hit a stretch goal, everyone benefits. And um, so I was looking at the stretch goals, you have the hack packs and there's just some like increased quality stuff. You know, the the, the cardboard will be a little bit stronger, yep. tougher. You're, I think the next one you got to, you, or you just unlock the custom linen gym bag, you know. Yep. I think I think those are cool things to just, you're getting, everybody's getting the same thing. And if we get stretch goals, everyone gets a better version of that thing. I just think, again, I think it's really smart. Yeah, and it's definitely a balance, right? So like, so I'd say probably three quarters of our stretch goals are going to be just global upgrades to the game. All the hack packs are going to be packaged separately. So Kickstarter backers are going to get those. And those will be available through 
all the retailers that contact us and and want to sell our game in their stores. They're going to be available at conventions and stuff, but they are going to be promote like promotional items uh, because it's important when you're doing a Kickstarter. Like people want to feel like they're getting something, and and in all honesty, they 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 deserve to be getting something, right? Like they're putting in their support months before they're going to get something and whether it's a pre, you know whether you call it a pre-order system or whatever you call it like there should be some incentive to say hey thank you for having the faith in me to produce this thing right and so the hack packs are going to be free to all the kickstarter backers and then we might put have them at cons for i don't know a couple bucks or something we haven't really figured that out but but that's kind of like our our thank you is is to the kickstarter backers is the hack packs um but yeah kickstarter exclusives are another big like area that there's a lot of debate on because yeah, it, it helps your Kickstarter do really well. But then when you start getting into like into stores or if you want to sell your store in retail, like that's a problem. Like Cool Mini or Not actually has gigantic, massive Kickstarter campaigns. I'm super looking forward to March 7th when they launch Rising Sun. I'm going to back it like day one. <laughs> but um, but they have these huge campaigns, but you get all this free stuff in it, right? So like why would I ever buy it from a store? Why would I wait to buy it from a store when I can just buy it on Kickstarter and get tons of free stuff? Like, right. But that's their business model, you know, and they have the right to do that and that's, and that's fine. But working as a at a retail store, I know that a lot of times it's like we don't carry Kickstarter games because it's like it's just not lucrative for us because all the people that wanted that game got it on Kickstarter and got a bunch of free stuff with it too. So we're trying to find that balance of providing value to the people who are, you know, putting their money behind us and putting their faith in us, uh, but also having something that uh, having a product that at the end of the day we can sell and be proud of that we're selling that as well. So that's kind of why we're shifting between the global component upgrades and then these promo items that people will be able to get later. All right, so I want to <laughs> take a second here because as someone who has said many times that I want to be a writer, yep. you know, one of my dreams is to be able to go into a bookstore, go to the fantasy section, and see a novel with my name on it. Mm-hmm. Has it hit you yet that you're a game designer? Uh, I I know I'm a game designer. I I am a game designer. That's that's a fact. I design games, and so on. You know, on on board game design time, we always talk about like, hey, if you you know, make rules. If you make, you know, rules to, for your favorite game and their house rules, you're a game designer. So I, I know that I'm a game designer, but being able, being able to be like a published game designer, I think is an, is another achievement that, uh, were unlocked. It has not hit me yet. Um, I am a type of person. I'm a, I'm a creative minded person. And, uh, for me personally, I, I guess I'll just, you know, bear, bear my soul to everyone here who's listening. <laughs> it's very, very difficult for me to celebrate my successes. And I'm trying to get better at recognizing, um, you know, the good things that are coming from, from my hard work. Uh, but for me, it's just something that I struggle with. Right. So we funded and I was like, cool. Yeah, we funded. All right. What's next? Like, what do we do now? You know, and part of it's because I'm in the middle of this campaign. I'm sure when it's over, like I'll take a step back and like, It'll, it'll really hit me that we have, you know, our game funded and we're going to be able to make it. Um, but no, it really hasn't hit, it hasn't hit me yet. And so uh, I'm just trying to push forward. And, and again, this is something like, you know, as a human being, I'm trying to get better at saying, like, taking a step back and saying, you know, you know no matter what happens, if our Kickstarter ended today and we didn't get another, another dollar, like, we are still way more successful than we thought we were going to be. So that should be something that I, like, take pride in. Um, but it's really hard for me. And, and Matt is the co-designer uh, of the game. He actually was the original designer of the game. He's the co-founder of 1000XP. He's really uh, working hard. He's been my friend for over 20 years. So he's working hard at trying to 
you know, ground me and say, hey, Chris, like we've done something awesome. We should be proud of that, you know? And so logically, I know that I'm, I should be proud of it. But right now we're in the middle of a campaign. So it's like, I'm just kind of in campaign mode, right? Like we're demoing our game at Emerald City Comic Con, showing it to people. And it's not that we're trying to like, you know, strike it rich. And we want, the, I don't, I don't want the campaign to do like a million dollars. That would be absolutely terrifying to me to have that much pressure but you know it's we're gamers right and gamers are going to game and we're competitive and we want the the you know we want to get the game in front of as many people as possible and so that's kind of the, the mindset i'm at now but to to speak to your thing about having the game in the store that's like that's such a huge deal for me for matt and i and we've actually talked about that specifically it's like we just want to go into it like our big thing is we want to go into a, a game store one day and see someone playing our game that we don't know like that to us is, is a huge deal. And I'm going to actually tell a personal story because this was absolutely phenomenal. Yesterday we were at, at Emerald City Comic Con and, and um, because we are friends with the folks from Cards Against Humanity, we were, we were able to luck into a table on the main floor of Comic Con. You know, the long story short is that Cards Against Humanity sold out of all their product because they did this huge um, marketing stunt where they just put piles of games in the middle of their booth and said, pay what you want. No one's watching this booth and left them there. And they sold out in like two hours of all their product that they brought for the con, which is Cards Against Humanity. That's what they do. But yeah. then my friend Trent from Cards was like, hey, we have all this booth space now. Do you want to come and demo your game? And they gave the their rest of their booth space to just local artists who couldn't either afford to have a booth at Emerald City Comic Con or couldn't didn't get a chance to get a booth. So they just gave their booth space away, which is really incredible for them to do. Um, so we were actually in the main floor, and someone came up to me, and they're like, oh, Last Garden. I saw that on Kickstarter. You, you made Under My Bed. And I was like, yeah, I did. And they're like, that is our daughter's favorite game in the world. She's seven years old. Every night she begs us to play under my bed. She she loves your game so much. And they actually had me. They I didn't have under my bed with me, but they had me sign one of my business cards. And they're like, "Here, can you sign one of your cards?" And we're gonna. She's gonna love it. And I was like, I, I was I was gonna cry. I was like, "Oh my god, this is like incredible, right?" Because that's what you imagine as being a creator. Like, it's very easy to be behind you know a webcam or behind a microphone and not really know the effects of what you're doing on other people. But then when you're confronted with it, like face to face, it really hits you. And it means so much that uh, people are enjoying what you're making. And so that was like a really big moment for me. And I'm hoping that uh, we get this with Last Garden, especially because this is Matt's first game, you know. And so uh, so for him, I really I really want him to have the feeling of walking into a retail store or, or a game store and seeing his game there. I think that'd be really awesome. So and, and it's going to happen, you know, and I, and I know it's going to happen. And so we're looking forward to it. Absolutely. That, that is Again, it's, I'm, I'm not necessarily close to tear, but I'm emotional hearing that story because yeah. it's awesome. And, yeah. you know, again, once again, bringing it back to me, similar situation with the Catacon when we did our first convention and we had people that didn't know who we were, but came up to our convention and had a good time and, yeah. and found me later and said, this was a great convention. I had a lot of fun. Like that's, I created something that other people enjoy and that pushes a lot of personal buttons for me. Yeah. Uh, so I completely get that. And I'm, I'm happy that you had that experience because that is, that is amazing, and uh, I'm sure that it will not be the last time that something like that happens for you. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, being a content creator, like, there's a lot of reasons to do it. I think, you know, part of the reason that uh, uh, you and I are such kindred spirits is that, you know, when you, start, you started RPG Academy, we started NPC Cast. it was always from the mindset of, like, we just want to help other people, and we know that helping other people will be able, will be able to reap, you know, personal rewards from that. And, but the step one is we want to make something for other people that 
can help you know them game better basically and so uh that mindset i think is is so important to have and that's why uh, you know for 1000 xp our mission statement isn't you know isn't even to like make the best products that we can make it's like we want to inspire people and we want to encourage people and we know that no matter what if we can do that we can find a way to make the rest of our business go and like and um you know whether that's we do a kickstarter for a game every year or we do a patreon or we do whatever like we're going to find a way to make that work but we have to start from a core that's like that brings us personal fulfillment and for us personally it it brings us fulfillment to know that we're inspiring other people to create things so that's what we want to just ground our entire business model on Obviously, I want people to go check out the Kickstarter, The Last Garden on Kickstarter. I'll have links in our show notes. You've done quite a few other podcasts, so hopefully people have heard you multiple times talking about your project. Hopefully. But but one of the things that I wanted to get into is someone who, again, I have a couple game ideas rattling in my head that maybe someday I'll get to. But if not, I'm sure someone listening is in that same mindset. I want to talk about some of the nuts and bolts things about actually like finding an artist, uh, deciding which you know, which like your, your gems, like how did those, like, where do you find those? How do you source them? Uh-huh. Well, finding a publisher for your game and, and just uh, those sort of avenues of, of what actually goes into putting a physical product together and then making sure that you don't, like you said, you get a situation where you're losing money on all the components. So, and I know, I know that's a very broad question, but since you've been through it and I haven't, can you kind of walk through a little bit about like for other people, the steps you took to get where you're at in that that aspect of the Kickstarter. Yeah, so um, K- Kickstarter is it's very intimidating, and I understand that it's intimidating, and I have been intimidated by it, and I still am inti- intimidated by aspects of it. But I think that the two resources that I would recommend everyone become extremely familiar with, there's two blogs. One is the Stonemeyer Games blog by uh, Jamie Stegmeyer. He is like the go-to source for games Kickstarters. He is like the guru. They made games like Scythe, Viticulture, uh, Euphoria, that kind of stuff. So uh, I think he's coming out with a new game called, um, I forget what it's called. It starts with a C, but it's like a new legacy game that he's uh, he's coming up with. But he is like the go-to guy for Kickstarter stuff. He literally wrote a book uh, on Kickstarter and it's basically his book is a collection of all his blog posts, but in chronological order. So I definitely recommend checking that out as well. Just support the guy. Like he does, it's a tremendous resource. So you go to his blog post and there's literally like hundreds of posts about Kickstarter and he breaks the entire process down. Uh, so familiarize yourself with that. Continue to check that, you know, check up, make sure that you're, you know, keeping up to date on it. Like it's a very, very, very valuable resource. The other resource is a, a blog by a fellow named James uh, Matthew, who uh, is the owner of Minion Games. And James Matthew's blog uh, also has a lot of stuff on publishing games, uh, Kickstarter, being a game designer. Like it's very, a lot of his stuff is very like informational. It's like, all right, here's, you know, the, 50 steps that you need to take to make a Kickstarter and he'll give you the checklist and you kind of want to familiarize yourself with that. Really, it comes down to copious amounts of research. The Kickstarter community is very, very open and honest with one another. So like there's tons of people that you can ask questions of. There's a few Facebook groups. There's, I mean, you look up Kickstarter and there's a, there's a ton of Facebook groups. So I'm part of a a few big ones. There's like uh, Kickstarter. There's a Kickstarter group, a Kickstarter best practices. Then there's like tabletop Kickstarter games and some other stuff. There's there's a bunch of them. But just get into the materials that already exist out there, the Jamie Stegmeyer blog, the James Matthew blog, and the Facebook groups, and just start consuming them. And trust me, like 
when you think you know enough, you don't know enough. And then when you think you do know enough, you'll, you'll find that there's still tons of stuff you don't know. So it's, it's just, there's so much to go into. And at some point you have to be like, okay, like I'm now comfortable enough to like, to make a page, you know? And so, and you'll go through and, and do that, but it's just, it's just research. And that's where I would start with number one. Uh, number two, before we get into any like specific tactics, uh, this overall strategy is there is a podcast called funding, funding the dream, which is another uh, resource that you could check out. It's a little bit older now. So a lot of the, the tactics that are in there are kind of out of date because Kickstarter is constantly evolving as a platform. But I remember that one of the taglines for that show they always used to talk about is in crowdfunding, the crowd comes before the funding. And it's very, very important. People know that momentum is a huge driver on Kickstarter. You need to make sure that you're hitting some target numbers. You want to get to 33% of your campaign in the first two days, or you're get, you're basically going to be dead of the water, um, barring some sort of viral hit or something that happens. But you need to have you need to bring that crowd to the platform, that initial crowd, and then once you have that initial push, momentum is everything on Kickstarter. So people will see that oh, this is likely to fund. I'm actually going to pay it some attention. Kickstarter backers are savvy and humans in general don't want to back a losing proposition. So even though they, even though they're not going to have to pay any money, uh, if a campaign fails, people just don't want to even press the back button if they, if it's likely that a campaign's going to fail. So you need to have that momentum going in. So what I would say to someone like, uh, you, Michael, is that you've already done a lot of the work. You know, when I did my first Kickstarter, I had already done a lot of the work. I had done NPC cast for four years before I launched my Kickstarter. That's four years of basically marketing myself to, to the community uh, that allowed me to basically earn, earn enough credit with those people to ask them to support me. You know, So I, I think that it's important that people know that you're not going to just be able to throw your game up on Kickstarter and have it go. Like You need to bring people to the platform to back you on day one. Uh, so start now. Either That's either making content or the very bare minimum injecting yourself in the conversations uh, in the community that you want to be a part of. If you want to write novels, get in on some, you know, uh, novel writing groups on Facebook and start interacting with people and networking and building their relationships. If you want to do board games, do the same thing with board games. If you want to kickstart a new above ground swimming pool, get into some above ground swimming pool Facebook groups and start networking there. Like, like do whatever it, it takes to, to start networking and marketing yourself first. And, and that's really, really important. That stuff is going to trump everything else. So you want to do the research and know kind of what you're in for. And there's going to be tactics in there that you're going to be able to employ, but doing the research and doing the legwork, uh, the hard work of networking and building that crowd before you start is the two biggest things. And a lot of times, like, that's the stuff that people don't really want to hear. They want to be like, oh, if I, you know, set my page up this way or do my reward levels this way, I'm going to be, I'm going to succeed. And it's like, uh, no, those will be like, those will help you do better. Yeah. But success is based on how much work you put in before the campaign even started. And that's building your crowd and doing your research. So that's kind of like the, the broad overview. Now to get into specifics. Well, I want to, I was going to interject there just a piece of advice that I have seen on some Kickstarters is don't wait until after your Kickstarter has launched before you start doing publicity for it. No, Uh, it's, it's too late. Uh, You know, if you're a weekend and you're not at that 33% and then you're like, Hey, maybe I should go on a bunch of podcasts and, or maybe I should, you know, try to get some review copies to people. It's too late. All of that needs yep. to be done before the Kickstarter launches. And, and so this is a, a huge lesson for us, right? So I, I, like I said, I felt fairly confident that we were going to be able to fund our game by the end, right? I was like, you know, even if we, we squeak by, I, I felt we were going to be able to fund. Uh, so we sent out a few review copies to people. 
Um, but they were not, I mean, they were kind of just like, it's our first game. You know, they weren't like big name reviewers or anything like that. And they haven't been the most professional. And so we haven't actually gotten those reviews back. So we sent out copies. We haven't got anything for them yet. Uh, but I was like, okay, whatever, I'll launch. It's not that big of a deal. And we find that obviously we're, we're successful, but there's a lot of people that a lot of comments that we get from people who are like, I want to back this game, but there's no reviews out there. I don't know how it plays. And so I put up a tutorial, but that's not enough for people. They want to see the game played, which makes sense, right? So we're actually losing out on a lot of backers because of that. Now, if I didn't have the benefit of having that community that was already supporting me and the people that I know within the games industry that are like vouching for, for my game, then I have, there's no doubt in my mind that I would not be able to fund without having those reviews. That's so important, right? Jimmy Stegmeyer's big thing that he hammers home on his blog and in his book is don't launch until you're ready. You know, even if you set a date, you tell all your, you, you know, you tell all the family, you're at Thanksgiving, you're like, hey, we're going to launch in two weeks, right? And it gets to like, you know, the week before and you don't have your reviews and you don't have, you know, your, your fulfillment figured out. You don't know who's going to be shipping your game out. Do not launch the campaign. It's not worth it. Wait until you're ready. It's, there's always time to wait. There's no rush in, in getting this game on Kickstarter. Um, I guess unless like you have some sort of like, if you have an idea that someone else is going to scoop, then then have a different idea anyway. But yeah. but uh, so, so I mean, there's no rush, and, and you want to be pre- as prepared as possible. And so that's what I, what I would say to people is, um, you know, to go along the lines of building your community and take the time to build a community, take the time to, to do the research, and don't worry about trying to get on the Kickstarter as fast as possible, right? Like there's there's going to be time to do it. Uh, and for us, like we actually waited. We, we had the campaign ready to go sometime in December and we could have launched in December, but we decided to wait till after December um, for tax reasons because it turns out that uh, there's tax implications for getting a big windfall of money in the end of December and not being able to spend it in time for tax season. So that's, you know, something that we didn't know about until we started ready, reading some of these blogs. So, you know, we're like, okay, well, we have to delay it because we don't want to have to pay taxes in, you know, early 2017 on all this money that we've made in 20, 2016. And so we wanted to delay it. And then we're like looking, I'm like, okay, well, if we delay it till February, late February, we can also demo the game at these cons. It's like, okay, that's, and then that's when we pushed it back. So we actually delayed it even further just because it's like we wanted to set ourselves up for, you know, success. So, um, you know, timing is, 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 is very malleable. You want to make sure you're ready to go. And then even if when you're ready, you can add another month or two to your, to your timeline just to make sure you have everything situated. Um, so that's kind of a broad overstroke, but let me, let me know. I'll just, I'll just want to hear from you because I want to help you out, Michael. Like, um, specifically, what area would you like me to talk about next? I can talk about fulfillment, can talk about manufacturing, kind of. Yeah, let's talk about manufacturing because that's the thing that I have, literally have no idea. Like, you know, how do you find a manufacturer? Where do you source all the different, you know, pieces and parts and then get it compiled? Yep. Uh, you know, what does that look like? So, so each project is going to be different, right? Uh, if you're doing a, a book, you're going to be looking at different people uh, to do that. With board games right now, um, there's basically two places to manufacture board games if you want to do it at scale um, and at, at a, for quality. And that's you can manufacture in China, you can manufacture in Europe. Now, Ludofact, which is the one of the biggest board game manufacturers in the world, they're from Germany. They just opened up a an American facility. Um, but I think that they're only... Currently, they've only done a couple games from there that's kind of getting up and running. Um, but so it's either China or, or Europe. And basically what it does is if you go to these, these, these blogs, you go to James Matthews' blog, he has a list of manufacturers. And it's literally like writing out the components for your game, 
figuring out what you want in it, converting that to metric, <laughs> and then sending sending it over and, and just sending emails and saying, hey, like, you know, uh, Panda, like, I want to do a quote. How can I do a quote? And you go to the Pandas page and they actually have a form that you can fill out so you can get quotes. And all these manufacturers that are doing games, like, they're the ones who are going to source all these components for you. And that's kind of the thing, right? Like we went to our manufacturer. Uh, we're actually using a company called Longpack. Uh, we got a few quotes from different manufacturers and Longpack was the best uh, combination of quality reviews from people that we know that have worked with them. Um, the price was very, very, <clears throat> sorry, very reasonable. And they were very, very responsive and uh, to our questions. And so we're like, okay, they, we felt comfortable working with Longpack. And so we're working with them. But it's literally like, okay, hey, I want the, these acrylic gems. And you, you send them a picture. And you're like, you know, they're in this game. This is what I want. And they're like, okay, we can do that for you. I was like, well, what colors can you do? Oh, well, we can actually do any color you want. Like, here's what it would cost. It's like, oh, okay. And so working with the manufacturer, they'll help you source all those materials. If you have really strange stuff, a lot of these manufacturers can make those things like they can do those things we have custom robotness meeples and we're like oh is that gonna be expensive and so we're like oh hey like can you do custom meeples like yep it's not a problem they're like there's two ways to do it here's a laser cut method here's a laser cut price if you want if you need to do really detailed meeples you know you'll need laser cut there's this method to do i don't know what it's called it's like pressing or something like that but there's another method of doing it where it's a little bit cheaper if you have like not as much detail in the meeple um, and so all these manufacturers will work with you. Like, and like I said, if you go to these resources, like James Matthews blog, like he does a whole breakdown about, um, RFQ, which is, um, request, uh, request for quote or something like that. Um, anyways, it is basically, he talks about uh, card stock because we had to know what kind of card stock we wanted. We had to know what kind of, uh, weight we wanted our, our board, our board to be. We wanted to, they wanted to know how thick we wanted our chipboard to be. All these little things that you don't, you take kind of take for granted. It's like, I open sure. up the game, I punch out the pieces and that I have the pieces now, but it turns out that like there's different ways to do that. And there's different types of codings and all that stuff. And that's just a matter of like really digging into, to, um, to the research and figuring out what you want and, and what you want is important because, you know, you don't want to go to a manufacturer. Sometimes these, these quotes can take a while because, you know, we're dealing with someone in a long pack, then they have to go to their factories and they might have a factory for printing paper. They might have a factory for wood components. They might have a factory for plastic components and they have to go to all these factories and uh, who are doing these different parts for them that they're all, you know, coordinating and um, they have to get quotes from them. So some of these quotes can take you like a week or two. So you don't want to be like, oh, here's what I think I might need. Oh, it turns out I actually need this. Like you want to know what your game needs. And then stretch goals are part of that. So with long pack, it's like, here's what we want for our base game. But can you also quote us a price for this stretch goal and then this stretch goal and this stretch goal? And uh, Gilliam is our is our rep there and he's been super awesome. And so he basically was able to give us a sheet and he's like, all right, here's how much your game's going to cost. Here's how much it's going to cost if you add this stretch goal. Here's how much it's going to cost if you hit all your stretch goals, so on and so forth. And so that's how you deal with the manufacturing is basically it's a matter of um, just, you know, contacting manufacturers and getting the quotes. Now, if you're doing like an RPG, there's, you know, other platforms you can do it on. Like you can theoretically do a platform or an RPG that's completely an ebook basically, you know, and then with that, you can actually go, you know, there's a lot of other ways to, to handle that or to distribute that. But for like a physical printer product, like right now it's pretty much, you know, China and Europe and, and Europe, um, is, you know, obviously more expensive than China is. Um, but the qualities are very similar. In fact, there's a lot of like big game companies that, um, are, are shifting over to Chinese manufacturers. Uh, and then there's some people that, you know, like, that will do 
you know, their English printings in, in China. And then they'll, they'll do like a German printing, like in Germany. Like, so there's all that stuff. We're not that big yet. So we're just kind of, we're staying small. And, and that was the thing. And, and what you said makes complete sense. It's the sort of thing that like, if I had thought about it long enough, I'd be like, well, one, I'm sure there's resources out there. Yep. And two, the people who do this, that's their job. They mm-hmm. are the experts. So if you go to them and say, hey, I want to make a game, they're going to know the right questions to ask. Yep. But but it, it's one of the things where I just didn't really think about it. But that was like, I don't say the fear, but it was sort of like a a mystery to me. It's like, okay, so we, we've got a price for what we can kickstart this game because we know that we will make some money. And again, like I said, you're not trying to make be rich, but you're not dumb. So you don't want to lose money on every copy of the game. That's yep. not smart. So you've you've decided what your margin needs to be for this game to make sense for for now and hopefully for future retail sales. But then if you add these stretch goals, that changes your price. And you don't want to get, to, like I said, we said at the top where you get the point where you're now losing $5. So it just makes sense that you would have quotes for each type. Right. But that means you have to know what every stretch goal is going to be and what that is going to add to the game before you launch. Yep. Again, it goes back to having a plan before you launch. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I get really into some some nitty gritty here. So uh, to to the people out there who are looking at like actually putting together a Kickstarter campaign, I'm, I'm going to go from the perspective of of a board game because I think because um, that's kind of it'll to me I think it's, it'll make the most sense. Sure. So so when you are pricing a game, right? Like we're t- like when you're trying to determine MSRP, MSRP for your game should be based on what the what's called the landed cost of that game is. So the landed cost is what it costs to manufacture plus what it costs to freight over the ocean to get to you. Yep. That's your landed cost, right? Now your MSRP needs to be at least five times that amount. That's where that's where your your price point is. You're not saying oh, I want to make ten bucks a copy. You're not saying I want to make twenty bucks a copy. You're saying my MSRP is going to be five times. And the reason for that is because the way that distribution model works currently for tabletop games is it you sell your games to a distributor. When you sell your games to a distributor, they are going to base what they are willing to pay for your game off the MSRP. So I'm going to throw some numbers out there. Um, other people have done the math. I haven't done the math, but this is how the math works out. So you're going to sell your game to a distributor for uh, 40% of MSRP. Then they're going to sell it to a retailer for 50% of MSRP. That's where they make their little money. And the retailer buys it at 50% of MSRP and sells it for MSRP, right? So for our game, $40 MSRP, that means that retailers are going to want to buy it for 20. Distributors are going to want to buy it for 16, right? The reason you have that five times multiplier is because if we're selling our games to to, uh, distributors for $16, we need to make enough profit there that we can eventually do a second print run if we need to, if the game sells out. If you have less than that five-time multiplier, you get into a position where you've sold out of your game, you've made profit, but you now don't have enough money to actually print another run of your game. And you'll need to raise more funds to hit that funding level, to to get that amount again. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of why, how that works. Now, you might say, okay, I want to make a game and I want to make it a $20 game. That's completely fine. You just have to know that when you go to the manufacturer and they give you a quote and the quote that says that your game is going to cost $6 to make, well, crap, you got to start cutting stuff because if you're trying to hit that $20 price point in a way that's feasible, uh, you got to cut stuff. Now, that changes slightly because now more and more, you know, companies are selling direct, right? So obviously if you plan on selling 
all of your stuff from your website, you have a lot bigger profit margin, which means that you have you can be a little bit more wiggle room with the MSRP. But the general rule of thumb is at least five times what's called the landed cost. So for our game, um, you know, we kind of looked at it and we said, okay, we can do an MSRP of 40 bucks, but we know that we're going to be selling the majority of this game is not going to be sold through retail. And so that gave us a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, but but those types of things, again, like like you said, it's actually it's really intimidating. And and I absolutely get that. And and to to what you were speaking about, it's like I didn't know what that was. Yeah. But but I found that like the more research I did, and this actually happened with fulfillment, because fulfillment was a very, very big bear that was super scary for us to tackle, right? And I'm gonna describe what we're doing for fulfillment and 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 uh, and then I'll describe what actually happened when we started contacting people. <laughs> so fulfillment, I knew about, through my research that the best way to do it is to ship to all these places in the world and have them fulfill because of the way taxes work. In in the Europe specifically, there's something called the VAT tax, where uh, if you ship a product into Europe, you have to pay like a 20% VAT tax on top of that product as an import tax. Now, if uh, you send it to someone the person who's receiving that is on the hook for that. So a lot of Kickstarter campaigns have gotten into trouble. Like, oh, I ship I ship my game to Europe. It was a forty dollar game. Now they have to pay another, you know, twenty or thirty dollars for these insane VAT taxes now. And that's on the backer to pay. And they're really oh. bad. Obviously they're gonna be really mad that they have to pay more for their to get their game you know now so what you can do to get a, to sort of not get really get around that, but what you can do is you can ship your games to Europe fulfill them from within Europe to the European backers, and then you can get around those VAT taxes. Now, VAT taxes are usually only coming to play if you're around $25 or more MSRP. If you have like a small game, you don't have to worry about VAT. But I was like, okay, so that means that for us, we need to fulfill in United States. Then we're going to do fulfillment in Canada with a different fulfillment company. We're going to do fulfillment in Australia with a different fulfillment company. We're doing Asia. And then we're going to have a European fulfillment company. So five different fulfillment centers are what we're going to need. And we're going to need to coordinate that. And I was just like, oh, God. I'm like That is I'm – I'm, I'm, I'm sweating now. <laughs> just so, listening to you talk. Right, right. So And I'm a creative, right? So I'm like, uh, I'm not good with, uh, with, with this type of stuff, right? It turns out that all the people that I'm dealing with are super professional. And they deal with new newbies all the time. And so I send out like – seven emails one night. Like I was like, oh, I'm just going to do it. I got to bite the bullet. I'm going to do it. Sent out seven emails. I got responses back next day. It was super easy. And I'm like, oh, and everyone's <laughs> like, oh yeah, we have no problem. Here, here's what the prices are. Here's what we can help you with. Like, let us know if you have any questions. I was like, okay, yeah. You know, I was, I was uh, talking to the guy at VFI. So just to give you an idea, like our Asian fulfillment company, I was like, okay, uh, how do I get, the, you know, I need to get the games to you. He's like, oh, who's your manufacturer? You know, we're in Hong Kong. Who's your manufacturer? I was like, oh, long pack. He's like, oh, I know them. I get shipments from them all the time. It's no worries. And then I sent I sent him a thing to our rep at Longpack, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we we send stuff to him. We can get that taken care of, no problem." And I was like, "Oh." And then our manufacturer is actually doing what's called the freight forwarding, which is they're going to actually coordinate splitting the shipments in China and getting all the games in the right boats that they need to get on to go where they need to go. But it's one of those things where it's like, until you do it, you, you there's this it's this huge yeah. thing, and that 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 element was on our checklist. Matt and I checked our checklist for so long. We're like, oh, one of us is eventually going to have to do this, and it's almost like we played rig, rock paper scissors to like see <laughs> who is going to finally. You know, it's it was like a, it was like the uh, staring game. It's like yep. Matt and I both know this needs to get done. And one of us is going to blink first and actually send these emails, and it turns out that it wasn't that big of a deal, and it, we were building it up. But that's the thing, right? And you actually mentioned that you hit the nail on the head, where it's like there's like this mystery around the process, like. 
you know, we don't know how these games get made. We don't know how they get to where they need to go. You know, there's no more Mr. Rogers showing us, you know, the factories anymore. Like, it's just kind of like, it's this, this is big boogeyman. Um, but when you start actually bringing it down to the tasks and start doing your research, you'll find that like, it's really not too incredibly complex. Now there are areas that will get you like, for example, when talking about the stretch goal stuff, not only do you have to know how much component cost that will add to the game, you have to know how much weight that will add to the game. Because, you know, you might be thinking your game's going to ship for 12 bucks. Oh, but we unlocked these cool metal coins. Now that puts you in the next weight tier. Now your game that was shipping for 12 is going to cause 18 to ship. Like, that's a problem, you know? So yep. you have to know that's a lot of little, like, gotcha stuff. But be diligent, do your research, and you'll you'll be able to come up with something that, that works out. Yeah, I know two different Kickstarters that I'm somewhat friendly with the creators. One... Weight got them shipping internationally, and they started losing money on yep. every one they shipped. Yep. And the other said, avoid Chinese New Year, because they shut down every factory in China for about yep. six weeks. And that will completely destroy your timetable if you think you're going to get your product in January, because you're not. Yeah, and and that was one of the things that really like really solidified me with, with Long Pack, is because... Um, you know, we're like, okay, so we got our quote. And when you get a quote, usually it's good for a, a certain period of time. Uh, so you, so you want to get a quote, like once you have your game components ready and you're starting to build out the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter page, you want to get a quote and you want to get a round of quotes from a bunch of people and you're going to pick who your manufacturer is. But then that might be like a 30 day window for when that quote, how long that quote's good. So you're going to need to get an updated quote right before your, your Kickstarter launches to make sure you check all the numbers again. Um, cause you know, the price of paper changes, all that kind of stuff changes. Uh, so for us, we needed to get an updated quote, and we mentioned to Gilliam at Longpack, and he's like, oh, you know, Chinese New Year's this day. He's like, we're going to all be out of office. We're going to get back on this day. Message us, you know, in early February, and we can go ahead and get you another quote. And then I was, you know, sitting at uh, my computer one day, and he actually just sent me a Facebook instant message. And he's like, hey, Chris, I'm back at office. We're ready to do work. Send over your stuff. Like, I want to get you a quote in because I know that you wanted to launch in February. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, he's, you know, going out yeah. of his way to message us. And so that's the kind of thing that was, is really solidified us with, with them is because we, this is our first time manufacturing a, a game. And like, you were scared. We want to be working with someone who is there to like help us out. So he's been super responsive. He's been watching the campaign. And so he's been like, you know, he's been kind of, he's like, oh, you know, congratulations on your stretch goals. Like, you know, and the the metallic dice thing, which is a quote that we needed like mid campaign. He was like, he's like, yeah, I can get that for you. Here's what it's going to cost, all that kind of stuff. So it's been re- very responsive. And it's definitely like having gone through that process now, uh, it's it's going well for us. Now, fulfillment, it, I, again, it's all going really smoothly. Like everyone's been very responsive. I'll let you know how it ends up once we have to actually <laughs> coordinate everything. Like, yep. You know, I, I don't uh, knock on wood. Everything will go fine. But that's kind of the learning curve, you know, and you don't know it until you do it. And, sure. and uh, you know, like, like it's uh, it's funny because I was mentioning to someone who is a, a friend of mine who's publishing a game and they're about to publish a game that has some minis in it. And I was like, man, I always want to do minis someday. Like, I would, I would love to do a game with some miniatures in it. Not a lot. Like, I'm not trying to do like cool mini or not, but I want to do like a game with some cool minis. And I was like, I want to pick your brain about it. He's like, I'm like, I'm really intimidated by it. And he's like, yeah. He's like, you're you're gonna sk- what you don't know is gonna scare you. Like that's just how it is. He's like, but I just started asking questions and figuring it out, and turns out it wasn't as bad as he thought it was either. So, it, it's the process is very daunting, and I think that um you know again the the solution to that is just researching and just 
asking people find other people mm-hmm. who have done the same thing and talk to them and everyone's willing to share their information like you know i mean i don't know how long i've been going but i i will talk to you about kickstarter stuff all day because i learned a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff and i would love to be able to help people you know not make some of the mistakes that i've made um, right. and learn from from my experience again and that's why i think it's and i hope it's valuable to people who might be listening because it is like i said it's it's the what you don't know mm-hmm. is what you're afraid of and um, again people have done this it's not like it's voodoo or magic it's just a process but if you don't even know where to start it can be overwhelming and intimidating right you know and again the podcasting community has been very amazing and open to me and my show and i'm I'm assuming similar to yours i'm sure the board game community is very open and, and welcoming and you just you got to bite that bullet and ask the questions or send those emails you know be be nice be polite be professional but there's no harm in asking and those questions can get answered and gives you confidence to do what you need to do yeah, because that would be my thing. If I want to put a game together, you know, I literally at this point would have absolutely zero idea how much it would cost. But now I know there's some resources that I can go find out. Now, I did right. want to ask, it wraps back around because we probably need to start to look at wrapping up. Do you, do you have prototype copies like right now when you go to conventions? Are are these just like components you've made or do you have a copy that was sent to you by the manufacturer? And how did you get a prototype copy if that's what you have? So, uh, manufacturers can produce, uh, small quantity stuff for prototypes. Uh, some friends of ours are doing a game where they have all these custom meeples and they went directly to their factory to get them printed a small run, but for like 18 copies of the meeples for their game, it costs them like seven or 800 bucks. Like it's very, it's very expensive to get those. So our prototype copies are actually made through some, a couple print on demand services that, um, are available to, uh, designers, uh, in the U S and so we actually sourced, uh, you know, kind of did a Frankenstein of three different uh, print-on-demand services. So one is called the Game Crafter. Uh, they printed our our tokens, and um, we sourced some of our components from them. Uh, we used a company called Print and Play Games. Uh, they are out of Washington State, so they're uh, they're near us. But they printed our board and made our prototype boxes, and then we sourced our cards from. Uh, drive-through cards, which is a print-on-demand card service. It's the same service I used to produce my first Kickstarter project under my bed. So all of these places kind of specialize in different things. Obviously, drive-through cards is cards, but Game Crafter and Print and Play, they actually just have tons of components that you can buy from them for for game stuff. So like all the little meeples that we have in our campaign, we just, you know, paid them for handfuls of meeples. Uh, there's also, we didn't use it for this campaign, but there's also Spiel Pro is um, another source where they can you can buy components from. So you can actually buy basically bulk board game components and then Print and Play and Game Crafter both allow you to do printing services. So you like upload, like for Print and Play, we uploaded our box image and um, they basically printed that and made us a prototype version of our box with like the graphic and everything on it. So the stuff that we're using in our, and our videos and, and our, we're playtesting with are not actually from the factory. Although, you know, a lot of the, the artwork and stuff is going to be the same, but it is, it's tough because it's like, you know, we had someone say on the, on the Kickstarter page, they're like, Hey, is there a stretch goal to turn that into like a real game board? And I was like, Oh, like it's going to be a real game board. Like our prototype <laughs> is not a real game board, but I promise you, you're going to get a real game board, you know? So there are, there are problems that, that uh, come with using like these, these print on demand services, but you know, for prototype copies and review copies, that's what pe- people do. Now, it's not cheap, right? Like for for three copies of our game printed in the, in this way, it was like 150 bucks. 
So, you know, if we, if you if you look at like my my times 5 multiplier, we'd have to yeah. sell that game for $250 to make a profit, so we're not going to be doing that. But uh so it's they're they're not the best for, you know, large-scale manufacturer. Now, there are some people that do that, like uh drive like game, game crafter, you can go to game crafter right now and you can buy people's designs through game crafter and it's just like print on demand. So obviously like the the margins are a lot higher, but you know, you can design a game, put it on game crafter and sell it and make some money, you know, because people are just, you know, spending 30 bucks and you know, you're getting 10%, 20% of that or whatever. Right. Um so th- I would use those resources, but uh you know, you want to make start start doing that when you're getting ready to really take the game to that next level. I don't really use those resources for when I'm making like prototype prototypes, like when I'm designing the game. I don't really use those too much. Uh, but once you're at that stage where you want to start showing the game off and selling it to people and having people do reviews, those uh, three places, four four places, are great ways to to do that. So so a lot of stuff like we're using, for example, we have uh, – I wish I had some near me. I don't have any near me. But we have the, these like little acrylic gems. Uh, those are like relatively common – board game pieces uh, and you can actually go to like michael's craft stores and like buy those pieces too mm. uh so you know those are pieces that exist and so the manufacturers they you know you can show them a picture of like, okay yeah i can do that you know the linen bag was like i was like we need a linen bag they're like yep no problem we can do that like okay like they they can handle all those things uh and more and more now these print on demand companies are, are having huge inventories of like really kind of cool game components uh, and their technology is getting better all the time. Like now, uh, Game Crafter does like laser cut stuff, so you can actually get them you get custom shapes. It used to be like you had to do fit their molds, you know, but now you can do custom chits and all sorts of different stuff um, as long as you upload the right files. So again, I could probably talk to you all day as well about Kickstarter stuff and yeah. and, and game design and and maybe I should have you back on in the future to do that. But we've been going on for a while now, so we probably need to look at wrapping this one up. But I know you have things to do today as well. So any sort of last words, last words of wisdom, either on the Kickstarter process that you've learned or that last pitch to try to get someone to go check out Last Garden and get their their copy. All right, so uh, check out The Last Garden. It's on Kickstarter right now. Uh, it's a passion project for us. It's a, a lifelong dream to get our game played by people that are not us or our family. So check it out there. Uh, and then I'm just going to double down on this Kickstarter resource because I think that like if you're listening this far, you're obviously interested in Kickstarter because you would have turned it off a long time ago. <laughs> um, but really, like it comes down to do your research. There's the Jamie Stegmeyer blog, James Matthew blog. I can absolutely not recommend them enough check them out first and foremost do that uh and then um just start building your community and start getting out there and putting yourself out there and being involved in these conversations and and building up that that cadre of people like you know for us for, to fund to to completely hit our funding goal we needed like 260 people that's not that many people right like so if you start now and you start really networking and building your network like you'll be able to put together a project that's going to be successful um but you have to have people there supporting you on day one so it's really important that you start now there's there's no reason for you even if you're not going to be kickstarting until next year there's no reason for you to not start now just networking and and building up your community of people that are into what you're making so uh, that's what i would i would say so do that and don't let the fear cripple you if you're scared you can always reach me out to me on social media My, i'm at npc chris on twitter Say, hey, I'm nervous. And I'll be like, send you a private message. I'll be like, don't be nervous. You got this. Let me know how I can help you out. Like, I really want people to to get past this because I know that crowdfunding, especially, you know, it's like 
creative people sometimes are trepidatious about asking people for help, especially when it comes to like money and stuff. It's it's very intimidating or, or feels weird to be like, oh, I want to make this thing and I need money to do it. It feels dirty. It's like people want to support you. And I think that it's important that creatives can get over that hurdle of saying, no, I can do this. I, it's not that hard. If other people can do it, I can do it. And I think that's the mindset you have to have. That's kind of like our thing is it's like, well, I've met some game publishers. I'm not going to name any names, but I've met some game publishers and they're not any... Uh, smarter than I am. Trust me. Right. So it's like, if they can do it, I can do it. So that's kind of where my mindset was. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, if, and if you will, um, when you send me your audio, include the links to those blogs and yeah. any other resources you want, and I'll throw them all in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the one thing that we didn't really touch on today uh, was playtesting. Yeah. And so just very quickly, where were you playtesting this game? I'm sure you have your own group of friends, but when you thought, hey, this is something we can do, you know, we can do something with, where did you go beyond your own private group to start playtesting? So playtesting comes in stages for me. Like the first, my first ever prototypes are I'm playtesting with friends and fellow designers who are used to like playing games that don't have win conditions, right? Like, cause I literally, I'm a, I'm a rapid prototype kind of guy. So I will play a game before I literally know how a person wins. I'm like, let's just play. We're going to play for three turns and then we're going to stop playing and we won't know we won't have points or anything like that. So I do that. And then I move it up gradually from there and I go to public play tests. And I'm fortunate enough to live in the Seattle area where we have a group called Playtest Northwest who organizes public playtest events at game stores all around the Pacific Northwest. Um, almost every weekend there's something going on. For example, Emerald City Comic Con, they have a presence there. So, you know, I reached out to them and it's like, hey, can I get some table time? And they gave me table slots at Emerald City Comic Con where I can demo my game there. Um, and so there's... There's that resource for the Pacific Northwest. There's groups called Unpub. There's groups called Protospiel. There's tons of different uh, groups that do those types of things. You want to reach out to designers and and uh, and stores in your area, and they might you know know about meetups and that kind of thing. Uh, it really just comes down to getting on social media and interacting with people near you that are into what you're into. But you want to start doing public play tests very quickly, and you want to like. You don't even, like, trust me, you don't know if you want to make a game a product until you start doing public play tests. Like, it's impossible to be like, okay, my friends like this game. I want to make, I want to make this. Like, no, like, get your, get your game in front of the public. And then eventually you want to graduate to what we call blind play testing, which is making your games, printing your rules and saying, all right, here's the game. Here's the rules. You guys play. I'm not even going to teach you. And then you need to test out the rules and make sure they make sense. But that's kind of how we, we did it. But we've been, like I said, developing this game for like two years. So we've done a lot of public play tests. We've done a lot of iteration on it. And it's and we've done blind, blind play testing. We've sent the game to people and they've recorded their play sessions and sent them back to us. Like we've done all that stuff. And so, you know, I, I think that like for, for me and Board Game Design Time, our big thing is we just want people to design games. And so even if you're not designing it for a product, like it's still a fun, game design is a fun hobby. And I would certainly encourage people who are interested in it to do it. And so like you might make a game for you and your friends and play it and it's fun and you take it to some public play tests and it's fun. And you still might decide that you don't want to ever like publish it, but that's cool. You have like a game that you and your friends can play, uh, you know, and maybe you, you spring for a fancy prototype of your game from Game Crafter and it's cost you 40 bucks, but now you have like this $40 thing that you made and it's a, something that you can play with your family and friends and that's cool. Yep. Um, but really like it, it comes down to just finding like-minded people in your area 
and meeting up with them, you know, and like we, we, there's a few Facebook groups for Seattle. I'm assuming that, you know, other areas have Facebook groups as well. If you have a local store, go talk to that local store owner and say, Hey, do you know of anyone around here that designs games? Do you know of anyone around here that'd be interested in doing a, a play test? And you can even offer to organize one. Uh, like I know there's a, a person named Jeremy commander who used to do, uh, organize his, his play tests. And what they would do is he'd be like, all right, well, you know, every third Tuesday of the month or whatever, I'm going to, uh, you know, book this or reserve this room at the pizza place. I'm going to buy pizza and I'm going to invite people to play my games. And like, that was like what he did. And that's how he got people to, to play test his games is like free pizza basically, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm there. Yeah. So there you go. So like, so reach out to people that are near you, reach out to your game stores and, and talk to them and they're going to be your best resource. Um, and then if you're eventually like, you know, just by asking around, you'll find out if there are people who are organizing what's called unpub uh, events near you. Um, there's a big unpub every year in Baltimore, but if you go to unpub.net, I think I can get the, you get you the link. Uh, there are people who organize what's called mini unpubs around the country. And unpub is basically just like a, um, it's a prototype convention an unpublished games convention, but they also sponsor like little mini events. So people can kind of use their branding to, uh, and use their event calendar to help organize those things. So yeah, uh, we had a, some at a catacon. We, we contacted them and they were, a catacon was officially like an unpub event. Yeah. So people, so people in the area could go to Unpub and see that, hey, you can come to a catacon and play test your game at art. Yeah, so they go yeah, they go to an Unpub website and they see it's like, oh, there's something happening at Catacon. Yeah, so that's awesome. So so that kind of stuff is is what I would focus on. Um and, and it's a long process and like playtesting takes a while and uh it's a lot of iteration. Um So but, so we'll we'll wrap up with this. What was yeah. and I don't want it to be like a negative, but like what was one piece of feedback you got from playtest that you were just like, oh, I can't believe like we hadn't thought of that yet or just something revelatory. Yep. So um, the number one thing piece of feedback we got is from a person named uh, Ed Baraf. Um, I, I, I know him as Ed. I think he also is online as Eduardo Baraf. He is part of uh, – he's the owner and designer for Pencil First Games. They've done stuff like Herbaceous. Um, what else have they done? They've done uh, gem-packed cards. They just did uh, Heroes and Tricks. So he's a publisher and a, and a designer. And he played our game at uh, BGGCon. And originally our game, so our game has cards and the top left of the card, there's a number and the card you play has to affect an area that matches that number, but the numbers in the garden can shift, right? So you might have an area of the garden that was a six. Now it's a five. Now there's no sixes on the board. So it used to be that, oh, if you have a six in your hand, well, you're out of luck. You can't use that card anymore. And he was like, well, why doesn't that card just become wild? Like then you'd never have any cards in your hand that you can't use. And I was like, Oh my God, that sounds awesome. And then now we play it and it's like, that is such like an integral rule. Every time we explain that rule, there are people like, oh, that's genius. I'm like, yeah, well, that was, that was <laughs> literally Ed Braff like came up with that mechanic and we, we you know, bless his heart. Like he, we, we started using it, you know, and it totally changes the game and it makes the game way better because now as, as the game's going on and these dice are being shifted and they're becoming more homogenous, your hands are getting more and more wild. So it lets you do more things. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah, it was mind blowing. It was definitely like, that was I, I. That's why it's so easy for me to pinpoint that. I was like, that game made the game like literally a million times better. Like, if without that piece of advice, honestly, like looking back on it, the game would suck. Like, the game is terrible without that. But having that in there is like it. It made the game, and that's the power of playing with other designers and, and getting their feedback. Is because, like, he's not asking for a royalty check. I mean, he probably is deserving of one, but he's <laughs> but he's not. He's not. He's not asking for one. You know, and that's uh, that's what designers do. You know, we we play test games and we want to help each other out. So, 
uh, were in his debt for that. So that would be the, the biggest thing, I think, the outside feedback that we got that was most uh, important for us. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, I lied to you because I'm going to ask you one more question. Sure. So what's next for 1000 XP? Uh, that is a, that is a, a question mark to be honest with you. So like, uh, so 1000 XP, uh, our mission is to inspire imagination, encourage creativity. We make content like board game design time on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash 1000 XP to see our stuff. Uh, we obviously produce NPC cast as well. Um, and you know, we want to publish and design games. And so we weren't really sure how this Kickstarter was going to go. We knew that, uh, if it barely funded, we might say, okay, we'll publish this one and then, you know, lay off publishing for a while. But now it's it's funded and it's going well. And so, and because the intimidation of the process has been sort of taken away. So now it's like, oh, well, maybe publishing games isn't that hard. It's very hard. Don't listen to me. But <laughs> it's not that hard. It's not impossible. And so, uh, so we're, we're not sure. We're, we're kind of weighing our options. Um, right now we're fully in, in last garden mode, but we have game designs that we wouldn't want to publish through 1000 XP our brand and the type of game that we want to make are games that have really interesting, you know, compelling themes. And we want our game themes to also inspire imagination. So we like the idea of this post-apocalyptic world with this badass elderly woman who's programmed robots. And we want you to wonder like, well, what did she do before? What what were these robots before they were robotonists and those types of things. We want people to think about that. So those are the types of games that we're interested in publishing. But we have other designs that like I have a design for a word game that I don't think 1000 XP would publish doesn't fit our brand but we want to pitch those out to other publishers so we might focus on some of our new designs and on for a little bit you know last guard we've been working on it pretty hard for two years now and so it'll be refreshing to start getting some some new designs to the table and and exploring those i know matt is really championing at the bit said like get some of his stuff out there he said he did a tally of the games he has designed or in various stages and he's like i have 11 games that i've that are in different stages of development that i want to start working on again so uh we'll be doing that and uh, yeah, and then we're going to see kind of what we're going to do next. We, you know, the next game we publish, it might be one of ours. It might be someone else's game design if we uh, can find one that we like. Uh, we're kind of keeping it open. We're, we're really trying to embrace this, uh, this agile methodology where we're going to, uh, we're going to try to, you know, do whatever we can do to, to make the best decision in the moment and to kind of be versatile in, in what we're making. Because again, like, it comes down to like, what are we going to be able to do that's going to inspire people? And, you know, that might mean that we double down on content as when the last garden is over and we just, you know, crank out a bunch of board game design time episodes and do that because, because of this campaign, we haven't made a new episode in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we actually are in the process of building a studio as part of, uh, in the daily magic offices. So we'll have like a little recording studio that we'll be able to, uh, to use whenever we want to make content. So you might see a lot more content when the Kickstarter is over. So I don't know, just follow 1000 XP and see what we come up with the next. We're, we're trying to be creative and we're trying to in, you know, embrace our fear of, of things that of, of the unknown. And that's going to lead us into some interesting directions. And so we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, for anyone listening, uh, please go check out the Kickstarter, the last garden. It, again, it's, it's definitely funded. It's, kicking through some stretch goals uh it would be awesome to help support chris and, and matt in their first major endeavor uh please listen to npc cast because it's a great podcast go, go watch uh, uh board games on time and all the things we've talked about all those links will be in the show notes so that you can get to it easily uh chris thank you once again for joining me thank you for getting up early on a sunday in con season no and problem absolutely my most heartfelt congratulations on your success thank you man i really appreciate it thank you so much awesome thank you and goodbye Thanks.
Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.